Section 7 of The Romance of Polar Exploration. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pat Navarre. The Romance of Polar Exploration by G. Firth Scott. The Greeley Expedition. In 1881, the government of the United States determined to send out another expedition towards the North Pole, and a vote of $25,000 having been passed by Congress for the purpose, Lieutenant Adolphus Washington Greeley was appointed to the command. Lieutenant Greeley, who was an officer in the 5th Cavalry Regiment, had, as his companions, three officers and 21 men selected from the United States Army. The scheme of the expedition was to proceed by steamer as far north as Lady Franklin Bay, where they were to form a depot on Grinnell Island and, using it as a base, push forward by means of dog sledges over the ice, and by steam launch over the open water as far north as it was possible to get. The steamer, Proteus, a vessel 467 tons and 110 horsepower, was chartered by the explorers to convey them from New York to Lady Franklin Bay. They sailed in June and proceeded to Upper Navik in Greenland, where they took on board their sledge dogs and two Eskimos, Jens and Frederick, to look after them. On July 1st, they resumed their journey in fairly open water. The season was especially mild, and they were able to make excellent traveling through the unimpeded water. On the way, they stopped at Cary Islands and examined the records left there by Sir George Norris in 1875, and which had been examined once before by Sir Alan Young in 1876. The sea was full of white whales, narwhals, and grampus. The latter has the reputation of being a voracious feeder. One authority stating that a dead grampus was found, choked by a seal he had attempted to swallow, although, when he was opened, his stomach was found to contain no fewer than 13 porpoises and 14 seals. On August 4th, the Proteus, for the first time during the voyage, was stopped by the ice. Being built especially for navigating the ice-covered seas, she was very powerful in the bows, which were further embellished by a strong iron prow. Thus, she was able to force her way through ice, which would have been impassable to a lighter craft. Her method, when she was faced by moderately thin ice, which was yet thick enough to stop her ordinary progress, was to steam astern for a couple hundred yards, then rush full speed at the ice. The strength of the iron prow and the force of her powerful engines drove her into the flow, but the operation was one that required great care. As she approached the flow, the crew, running from one side of the deck to the other, caused her to roll as she struck, the engines being reversed directly her prow penetrated the ice, so as to prevent her wedging herself in. This exciting operation was repeated several times when she met the flow in Lady Franklin Bay, and only by its means was she able to ram her way through and reach the destination of the expedition. A site was selected on the north of the Discovery Bay, where the Discovery wintered in 1876, and on August 11, 1881, Greeley landed and proceeded to the cairn which had been erected by the Nares expedition. Here he found two copper cases labeled Reports and General Information. The date upon them, which showed when they were deposited, was August 11, 1876, 
exactly five years before to a day. Proceeding a little distance from the spot where the Discovery Winter Quarters had been erected, a suitable situation was marked out for Fort Conger, which was to form the base of the operations pending the time when the relief ship was due to take the expedition home again. During the following week, everyone was hard at work erecting the frame house which was to form their home during the next two years. Unloading stores and other articles belonging to the expedition, arranging the heavy casks and cases of imperishable provisions near the house, and exploring and hunting over the surrounding country. The hunting was a necessary part of the business, for winter would soon be in and no fresh meat would then be obtainable. So a few of the best shots spent their time in the valleys round the bay, where a large number of musk oxen and other game frequented. On August 18th, all the stores and company belonging to the party were landed from the Proteus, and that vessel, being discharged, got up steam and bade farewell. She was, however, prevented from getting out of sight until August 26th, the ice setting in rapidly and strongly. The men of the party worked with such a will that they had their house built, the recording instruments erected in proper localities, the provisions stacked, and everything in order sufficiently early to permit them to carry out some surveys, while the weather was yet mild enough for sledge traveling. Attention was also given to obtaining as much game as possible, and by the time that the temperature was cold enough to warrant their going into winter quarters and giving up outside work at any distance from Fort Conger, they had obtained for their larder 26 mux oxen and 10 ducks, besides hare, seal, ptarmigan, in all 6,000 pounds of fresh meat for their own food and an equal amount for the dogs. In the middle of September, they were visited by a large pack of wolves. These were first discovered prowling over the ice on the harbor in front of the encampment, and fearing the loss of some of the dogs as well as provisions, a hunting party went out to shoot them. But the wolves were too cunning keeping out of range until the men were tired out. They were frequently fired at, but none fell. Although, as subsequent events proved, this might not have been due to bad marksmanship. The Arctic wolves, as was discovered later, are perhaps the most tenacious of life of any of the northern animals. One was seen, a day or so later, within a hundred yards of the house. It was immediately fired at and rolled over with a bullet through the body. But before the marksman could get over to where it lay, the apparently dead creature scrambled to its feet and made off, bleeding profusely. The trail left by the blood was distinctly visible on the snow, although the wolf itself, being covered with pure white fur, was quite invisible. For over an hour the trail was followed, and when at last the dead body was found, it lay practically bloodless, having struggled on while there was a drop of blood in its veins. In view of the difficulty of shooting them, the men resolved to poison them. But, here again, the wolves were not to be caught. The first time that poisoned meat was put out, it was left untouched. Some good meat was added, and at once disappeared, though the pieces containing the poison were still left alone. The poisoned baits were then taken up, and only good meat was put down, the wolves having always taken it until, their confidence being aroused, a few poisoned baits were mixed with the other. The experiment succeeded so well that when the baits were next visited, four wolves and one fox were found dead. The others, evidently alarmed, made off and did not again return. 
as october passed the phenomena of the solar halo and aurora began to make their appearance the observation of atmospheric conditions being one of the objects of the expedition great attention was paid to these displays and some excellent descriptions were given of them one which occurred on october twenty first and lasted five hours is thus described by the leader of the expedition it consisted of two concentric rings distance twenty three degrees and forty six degrees respectively from the sun which were marked by five mock suns where the rainbow tints were most clearly displayed this was followed at evening by the first aurora display in the form of a delicate convoluted ribbon of colorless light on the twenty fourth there was another halo this was a double one there being two perfect concentric half circles distant twenty three degrees and forty six degrees from the sun each half circle having a contact arch of magnificent clearness no fewer than six mock suns appeared two on either hand and two above the real sun with prismatic colors in each case as vivid and clear as in any rainbow the heavens being filled with a great glow and wealth of color after the sun was gone and the twilight of the long winter night had set in the sky was vivid at one time with a wide sweep of red yellow and blue marked by bars of white light running up and down later when the moon had risen further atmospheric marvels were recorded on one occasion the moon was surrounded by two circles twenty two degrees and forty six degrees above the horizon both were topped by contact arches and within them six mock moons were present two on each side of the true moon and two directly above it all of which were brilliant with the colors of the rainbow spires of light proceeded from the moon vertically reaching downwards to the horizon and upwards to the outer circle in addition to these a brilliant streak of white clear light extended from the moon horizontally on both sides completely round the horizon and now and again a faint mock moon of rainbow colors appeared high over the hole and another very low under it making eight mock moons all visible at the same moment around the real one the moon was also seen surrounded by a corona of four distinct bands of colored light the first white the second yellow the third blue and the outer one red but all experiences of the winter were not so gratifying as these aerial displays as soon as the snow lay thick upon the ground the men banked it up against the sides of the house until they were completely covered in up to the eaves it then froze on the outside and the house was practically covered in with ice this was of very great value in preventing the loss of heat from the interior and later on in saving the house from being blown away in a terrific hurricane which occurred but even with the protection of the frozen snow outside and the constant burning of fires and lamps inside the temperature of the house was in midwinter so cold that any water accidentally spilled on the floor turned to ice unless the ink bottle was kept near a burning lamp the ink froze at once outside everything except alcohol was frozen solid the mercury being hard in the thermometers and even the rum getting thick as syrup the lime juice of which a daily ration was taken was frozen into tablets and so quickly did any liquid turn to ice that some of the sledge-dog puppies were frozen to the ground through running on to the place where the warm contents of the slush-bucket were thrown 
Early in January, the barometer falling very rapidly warned them that a severe storm was approaching. Suddenly, a fierce gust of wind swept over the house, followed by a steady blow, the apparatus for registering the velocity of the wind showing it to be at the rate of 18 miles an hour. The barometer continuing to fall, a man was sent out to take an observation from an outside station, but the force of the wind had increased so much that he could not face it alone, and two men had to go. The air was soon filled with driving snow, and the rate of the wind reached fifty miles an hour. It was now only possible for six men, supporting one another, to stand against the dense volumes of snow which the wind carried. When the velocity attained to 65 miles an hour, fears were entertained as to the safety of the house. But still the wind increased until, in a series of terrific gusts and squalls, the house rocked and trembled as the register marked 90 miles an hour. It was a moment of intense anxiety for the members of the party, for the destruction of the house at that period of the year would almost inevitably have meant their own destruction. Fortunately, it was securely built, and so well protected by the banked-up snow that it withstood the fury of the hurricane. This furious outburst was the final effort of the winter, for within a few days of its occurrence the sky began to show signs of the approaching sunrise. With the advent of light, the spirits of the party, necessarily depressed by the prolonged darkness, rapidly resumed their normal contentment. When at last enough natural light existed for the men to see one another, they were amused at the appearance of their faces. The prolonged absence of sunlight had entirely robbed their cheeks of any semblance of ruddiness, their complexions having changed to a ghastly yellowy-green tint, as though each one was suffering from a severe attack of seasickness. The murky light of the lamps had not revealed the change and the more vainglorious were considerably disturbed at their bleached cheeks, fearful lest the pallor should always remain, like the whiteness of the bear's fur. But it passed off under the influence of the sunshine. Nor was this the only change produced by the sun. The effect of it upon the land was so pronounced as almost to seem marvelous. Directly spring, set in sledge, parties were dispatched in all directions to survey and spy out the country. One was led by Greeley himself, its course being along the route marked out for a certain distance by one of the discovery parties in 1876. Passing beyond the limits of the previous exploration, a large river, entirely frozen over, was discovered, and along its course the party made their way. The ice was wonderfully smooth in comparison with that on the salt water, and excellent traveling was made, the men and sledges frequently being able to slide for a hundred yards at a time. At the head of the river they found an enormous glacier, completely blocking up the valley, extending five miles from side to side and a hundred and seventy-five feet high. This was late in April, and everywhere the ground was covered with ice and snow, desolate and motionless with no sign of life and no sound, save the faint gurgle of running water which was occasionally noticed under the ice on the river. Early in July, little more than two months later, this valley was again visited, but so great was the change in its appearance that the men might have doubted its identity with the cold, 
desolate place they had previously seen, but for the existence of the sparkling glacier. The river now flowed along, glittering in the bright sunlight between banks covered with flowering plants. Bright yellow poppies gleamed all over the verdure-glad slopes, with sturdy heath blooms, daisies, and other blossoms mingling, and over them were the flitting innumerable white and yellow butterflies. Humble bees droned, and flies, including the familiar daddy longlegs, were everywhere present, as well as their arch-enemies, the spiders. Ptarmigan, their white plumage somewhat speckled with dark feathers, plovers, and birds of smaller sizes, were seen on the wing. While over the verdant sides of the valley and along the banks of the river, large herds of musk oxen were browsing, with calves following the cows. The sky was brilliantly blue and almost free from clouds. In the face of so much that was beautiful and full of life, it was difficult to realize that a few weeks later the valley would again be desolate and deserted, owning once more the supremacy of the icy grip of the frost and snow. Exploring the valley carefully, some very interesting discoveries were made of ancient Eskimo dwellings. A number of relics were obtained, some of them being implements which were quite unintelligible to the Greenland Eskimos who were with the party. The remains of the houses showed that they had originally been substantial structures, built of slate and must have been permanent residences rather than mere summer quarters. While the interior of the country was being explored, other sledge parties set out over the frozen sea. One of these journeyed north and reached the spot where the Alert had passed the winter in 1875. It was intended to continue the journey over the ice towards the pole, similarly to the sledge party Commander Markham and Lieutenant Parr had led. But the ice was too rough for them. They passed beyond Cape Sheridan and set out towards the north, but turned back, finding nothing but an inextricable mass of huge bergs and enormous hummocks piled up in a similar manner as when journeyed over by Commander Markham. The specific instruments they had with them had to be abandoned at one place, owing to a sudden opening of the ice, but they approximated their highest latitude as being 82 degrees 56 minutes north. From the summit of a high berg, they fancied they saw open water to the north, and then they returned to the land, finding cliffs which rose 2,000 feet straight out of the water, and along the base of which the ice lay piled in tremendous heaps. Another party, under Lieutenant Lockwood, the second in command of the expedition, set out in the early spring across the frozen straits to Greenland. This was over a similar route to that taken by Lieutenant Beaumont of the Discovery, but the later expedition, not having to struggle against the affliction of scurvy which had proved so disastrous to the discovery party, was able to reach a far higher latitude. The party consisted of Lieutenant Lockwood, Sergeant Brainerd, and the Eskimo Frederick, and they succeeded in reaching the most northerly point that had yet been discovered, not only on the coast of Greenland, but also in the Arctic regions. The latitude recorded was 83 degrees, 23 minutes and 8 seconds north, and thus the honor, which for 300 years had been the boast of the British, the honor of having attained the nearest point to the North Pole reached by man, was wrested from the British lion by its cousin, the American eagle. 
Although only three men were in the party which reached this high latitude, the party which set out from Fort Conger comprised thirteen men and five sledges. The experience gained by the members of the Naris expedition was of the utmost value to the subsequent explorers, and the members of the Greeley expedition always made acknowledgment of this fact, coupled with the very complimentary references to the skill, the courage, and the devotion of those whom they termed our kin from over the sea. Thus, it was that in laying the plans for this northerly trip that they provided for a series of food depots and relief parties all along the route. Several of the former had been placed in position during the early spring, and there is no doubt that this arrangement contributed very materially to the success of the enterprise. The last depot was formed when nearly in sight of Cape Britannia, and from thence the small party of three pushed forward. The dog team saved them an enormous amount of labor by dragging the sledge for them, but even then they found the traveling exceedingly difficult. Their sleeping bags were damp, and consequently they were always compelled to rest in great discomfort. As they approached Cape Britannia, the route became more difficult, and their best march was sixteen miles in ten hours. Beyond the Cape, an island was reached, to which the name of the leader, Lieutenant Lockwood, was given, and the extreme point of which furnished their farthest north. The coastline still showed beyond and to the most distant point the name of Cape Washington was given. Then the small band turned back, having succeeded in reaching a few miles nearer the pole than Commander Markham, whose journey, however, was over the frozen sea, whereas the other was along the Greenland coast. The following spring, to anticipate the course of the narrative, another effort was made to reach Cape Washington, but so rapid a thaw set in that the party had to turn back before reaching as far as Lockwood Island. They, however, secured all the relics of Lieutenant Beaumont's party, including a British ensign, which were faithfully preserved throughout the terrible privations the expedition was fated to undergo. These relics were subsequently forwarded by the United States government to the British and are now in the Greenwich Museum with the Franklin mementos, treasured not only as emblems of British courage, but also of American goodwill. Of the memorable record left by Lieutenant Beaumont at Repulse Bay, its perusal by the members of the Greeley expedition is thus described by the leader. This brilliant record of British courage, discipline, devotion to duty, and endurance must ever affect deeply all who may read its full details. To the men of the Lady Franklin Bay expedition, who justly appreciated the terrible contingencies of the situation, and who bore similar dangers, this story, as told by the gallant Beaumont, was full of deep and assuring interest. The American Festival of Decoration Day occurred while the party were at Polaris Bay, the place where the two discovery men who died were buried. The festival is one for the commemoration of American heroes, and on that day, throughout the United States, all the graves of their heroes are decorated. Here on the bleak, barren Greenland coast, they remembered the festival, and kept it by taking the stars and stripes from the sledge poles, and draping them over the rough monuments erected above the remains of the two British sailors. The second winter that passed at Fort Conger was monotonous and gloomy. The experience of the previous period of darkness was of great service, inasmuch as the comfort of the expedition was improved in many ways. 
the piled-up snow which had formed so useful a protection the year before was carried right over the roof considerably increasing the warmth and snugness of the interior but there was one fact which weighed somewhat heavily on the minds of every one a relief steamer was expected before the winter set in and it had not arrived there was still an abundant supply of food and no alarm was felt on that score but the novelty of the surroundings having worn off the prospect of a long weary stretch of darkness had a depressing influence it however passed without any untoward incident and with the return of the sun field work was resumed the most notable journey was that of lieutenant lockwood and his companion on the farthest north trip sergeant bernard who in one month covered four hundred thirty seven of the hitherto unexplored interior parts of grinnell land discovering numerous lakes and glaciers one of the latter was of particular interest by reason of the very colored face it presented the top layer which overhung slightly was of dull opaque white the immediately beneath it ranging in color from pale green to a clear blue while the next and thickest layer was of a rich chocolate color due to the soil which had been frozen in with the water the lowest streak was similar to the topmost dull opaque white in their absence the remainder of the explorers were busily engaged in establishing food depots to the south along the route they would be compelled to take in the event of a retreat being necessary the non-arrival of the relief steamer prior to the winter gave rise to some speculation whether it would arrive in the spring and a plan was arranged for a retreat to the south being carried out if no relief ship came in the boats the expedition possessed these consisted of a steam launch twenty-seven feet long an ice-boat which had been abandoned by lieutenant beaumont in eighteen seventy six and two whale-boats a depot of forty days full rations was placed at cape baird and another of twenty days rations at cape collinson as soon as the ice was open enough to allow the launch to proceed then when it had returned and all the survey parties were in a decision was come to that if no steamer arrived by july thirty first the retreat would be commenced. End section 7